If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. We're going to take a look at the birth of Christ, according to Luke, this morning, which we recently just studied, actually, uh, during Christmas time. But something I, I did want to uh, take a look at is, this morning I got a text from our brother Mario, uh, and he sent me this article from Life Science, and the title on this article says, A 1,500-year-old Christ-born-of-Mary inscription was discovered in Israel. And the article goes on to share how this inscription was written in Greek, and they found it in this church all the way back to the Byzantine period, so less than 500 years after the time of Christ. And they say that every time the archaeologists dig a hole and find more truth of the Bible, they bury a critic. And it's true, our Bible, we don't make it up as we, we go along. It wasn't written and inspired by a science fiction novelist. It wasn't given to one man over an angel revealing it to him. But our Bible had over 60 authors, 66 books, and the incredible thing is that all these books line up in unity with one another. So we see our, our Bible is inspired, meaning that God literally breathed these words out onto the pages that we're reading. Yes, it was written by man, but inspired of God, that meaning for inspired, it literally means breathed. So God breathed these words that we're reading this morning. In Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bibles turned there, we'll begin with verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing in Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now again, the, this is the second emperor of Rome, Augustus, leader of the world, and he thinks he is leading the world by having this census taken place, by having everyone register in their hometown. And little does he know that God is using him to fulfill the plan to have Jesus born in Nazareth. I think sometimes these world leaders think they're so in control of everything that's going on. And in reality, God is using them as instruments, as tools. That's God's sovereignty and his power to move the world how he desires. Did you know that even Satan is used at times to fulfill the plan of God? He's an instrument testing the hearts of men. And sometimes Satan thinks he's getting one up on on God, but God and his sovereignty is able to just turn all things for good for those who love God. So now that this register is taking place in verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, from this here, we also see that both Joseph and Mary are actually from the line of David, which was prophesied of, that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, fulfilling prophecy. And again, if you look at this picture now, they have to travel over 70 miles to Bethlehem to register for this census, and Mary, being prego, is experiencing now what it is to have that child in the womb. And now they have to journey by 
not by automobile or they didn't get on the tram to go. So this was going to be a, a wilderness journey experience for both of them. So now in verse 6, so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now these swaddling cloths, those are those linens that a, a mom would wear for that baby to be pressed close to her. As the little baby is suspended. I've seen sometimes nowadays the guys and girls are doing it with their dogs now, which is kind of ridiculous. But as important as this birth was not only for the life of Mary and Jesus, but they had no place, no room for them in the inn. They had to use a manger, a crib, or a stall, but not for babies. It was actually used for cow food, for dry hay, for the cattle, and for the livestock. And we recognize that Christ, when he came to this world, though he was the king of kings, Christ was born in what was carrying animal food. We see the humility of Christ and how he entered this world. He humbled himself as a man and was born into even the, the filth of, of humanity, yet without sin. That word for humility, it means to make lower in rank or in position. It's to be less than those who are honored or rewarded, to lower one's pride, to be modest, and to be unassuming. So now as Christ is coming in in such a humble way, there's a problem with this, that there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I'm reminded again that we need to make room in our hearts for God. Perhaps this morning, there is no room in our heart for Christ the Savior. A couple of weeks ago, I, I quoted from a, a passage of a book known as My Heart, Christ's Home, written by Robert Boyd. And he goes to explain how it is in our lives when we invite Christ into our home, our hearts, and in our minds. And there's those things in our life that we like to keep in the closet, right? When things get messy, sometimes we just throw things in the closet because people are coming over and we want them to see the nice living room, right? So we just throw everything in the closet. Some, for some of us, it's the garage. But we do that with our lives spiritually sometimes. We want people to see the nice purity of our lives and the goodness, the good morale. And those things that we do in secret, in the dark, those things we, we hide and we put them in a closet. So in this book, I'm going to read a portion of it, My Heart Christ's Home. Robert says this. After he goes to all these rooms and Jesus goes to the man and asks him, what is this odor that I smell coming from this closet? And the man tries to say, no, 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 don't, don't go in there. And Jesus says, just give me the key. Just authorize me to take care of that closet, and I will. So with trembling fingers, I passed the key to him. He took it from my hand, walked over to the door, opened it, entered it, and took out all the putrefying stuff that was rotting there and threw it away. He cleaned the closet and painted it. He fixed it up, doing it all in a moment's time. Oh, what victory and release to have that dead thing out of my life. Then a thought came to me. I said to myself, I have been trying to keep this heart of mine clear for Christ. I start on one room, and no sooner have I cleaned that than another room is dirty. I begin on the second room, and the first room becomes dusty again. 
I am so tired and weary trying to maintain a clear heart, a clean heart, and an obedient life. I am just not up to it. So I ventured a question, Lord, is there any chance that you would take over the responsibility of the whole house and operate it for me and with me just as you did the closet? Would you take the responsibility to keep my heart what it ought to be and my life where it ought to be? And we know Jesus' answer and his response to that is yes. He desires to take over our whole life, the whole house. He doesn't simply just want to remove the sin, but he then wants to use our lives for his glory, for his gain. And so, again, this morning, invite the Holy Spirit, invite Christ to be Lord and Savior of your life. You know, that's not something just for non-believers. That's something for the believer to take note and to take evaluation every morning, every night before you go to sleep. Of, Lord, I want to accept you into my life. And it's not for the first time, and you're not, you're already saved, but you're recognizing that he is the author of your life, the Lord. So as Christ is born now, it says in verse 8, Now there were in that same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. So again, from this verse, we realize that it's extremely unlikely that Jesus was born on December 25th. Their actual weather patterns are super similar in Israel to Southern California's because we're on the same line of the, the longitude. And with that, they have spring, they have summer, they have winter, they have fall, the same seasons that we do here in Southern California. If you get to go there one day, you'll feel like you're in Southern California at times with the weather being so beautiful. So it is extremely unlikely that Jesus was born on December 25th when we celebrate it because it would have been too cold for the shepherds to be out there in the flocks in the winter. Now, shepherds, again, they were considered to have a very dirty occupation. They were always around the the smelly sheep. Yet this is who God chose to reveal his message of Christ's birth to. Not to the leaders of the world or, or the synagogue and great men, but to the humble. And the glory of God that's shining around them, it's a fearful thing for them. The Shekinah glory of God, that same glory that knocked Paul off of his high horse when he was Saul, and then he repented and became Paul. In verse 10, it says, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So here the angels are proclaiming that the Messiah has come, This is the answer now for our redemption. This is what it means to us that our salvation has arrived on this earth. After this lost world was separated from God, we were separated by our sin from having an awesome relationship with the Lord. Jesus has entered into this world to save us. Did you guys know that even the angels are interested in, in the theme and the idea of our salvation. In 1 Peter 1.12, there's a verse that says, 
after Peter is writing on the doctrine of salvation by redemption, Peter states this. You don't need to turn there. He says, things which angels desire to look into. You see, because the angels, they're, they're already solidified in salvation. They've, those who are still angels, not demons, but those who are angels never tasted sin. They never fell. So they look into our salvation and wonder. Now, if the holy angels, these intelligent spirits, desire to look into the things of God, there must be some very deep things hidden within the simple gospel truth. If we looked into these truths concerning salvation, we would be comforted. And then we rejoicing would follow. The trials and anxieties that we have, they, they wouldn't be at the forefront of our mind. We would see God has conquered them. And every little surprise in life, it wouldn't seem so big, so intense. It'd be small in comparison to the God that we worship, his love. You see, we would be more than conquerors. And then we can rejoice in what the Savior has done and all the great things that he's done for us. That he sanctifies us. You see, when we count our blessings, when we look at, wow, this is what God is doing in salvation, we realize that he meets our greatest need. That God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit is everything we need. They become that. In verse 15, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see the things that have come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. That word Bethlehem, that city, it means the house of bread. And how interesting that the bread of life was born in the house of bread. That, that idea, the bread of life, that's Jesus being able to fulfill our needs. He said to his disciples, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. And when he said that, a lot of them were like, oh man, this guy's Hannibal Lecter. We need to get out of here. They were scared of it. They didn't understand and were, they were not looking at things spiritually. But what Jesus meant and what was given to those disciples who believed was that his body was going to be broken for our sins. That when we submit to him, his life becomes our life. See, if we try to save our, our own lives the worldly lives, we're going to lose those. But if we give those up, God gives us a new life. And we gain that life, that new life that cannot be taken away from us. Now, this is a comfort to me as I'm studying how Jesus came to this world because I realize, man, Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. And all we simply need to do is come before him and ask Jesus Take this from me and repent. And there has to be change. There has to be a change of heart. There has to be a recognition that Jesus is going to lead us. It says in verse 16, And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. So we have the first evangelists here going out and spreading what they had just found, what they knew to be true. That's an encouragement for us to share the gospel with others. In verse 19, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had heard and seen. You know, sometimes God will lead us not to to move, to act right away when we're given a new truth, but to ponder, to use discernment, to meditate, to walk through what these things mean, to ask questions. Who is this child, Jesus? What will he grow up to do? Were probably these questions that Mary was asking. In verse 21, and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So now eight days after Jesus was born, this circumcision takes place as was commanded of the Jews. And he is now named Jesus. That name, Jesus, it's Jesus, which is broken up. Jehovah is salvation. That idea that the all-becoming God is our Savior. Again, I, I reiterate this idea that Jesus is everything we need. I've, I've told you guys about the seven I am statements in the book of John, the gospel of John. Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the light. And all these things are needs that we have in our hearts, in our minds. You know, there's a, a, an interesting argument about the existence of God. It's the argument of necessity. You see, everything that we crave, everything that we, we need, it exists. You see, I don't crave leprechauns. They don't exist. I crave food. It exists. Just because I don't get food doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I might not get that food. I might not get that water, but it does exist. I crave air, it exists. I crave water, it exists. And in that same way, human beings, we crave a God in our life, the living God. He exists. He is everything we need. That is who Jesus is. Jehovah is salvation. In verse 22, Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So now Jesus is being placed under submission of of the law of his father, God. And what I find interesting is that Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, 17 and 18, he said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is all fulfilled. You see, the law, it requires death for disobedience. And Jesus came to fulfill the law by dying for our disobedience. And Paul the Apostle, he would write, Christ is the end of the law to those who believe. You see, Jesus, he's brought us into a new relationship with God that involves our faith in Jesus Christ as the basis for our righteous standing before God. He fulfilled the requirements of the law for us, dying in our place. See, Jesus fulfilling the law, he makes that covenant that promise that God gave all the way back in the Old Testament fulfilled. And Jesus is faithful to keep his promises in our life. 
It says in verse 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. That word Simeon, that name, it means hearkening or to listen. And what do we notice? This position of the Holy Spirit at the end of verse 25. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, how many positions in relation to a person are there that the Holy Spirit has? I'm sorry? Three. Good. Gold star. <laughs> there is the with experience where the Holy Spirit comes along aside a person to convict them of sin, to draw them to the Lord. There is the in experience where the Holy Spirit then enters a person upon receiving salvation. And then there's the upon experience where the Holy Spirit moves in and through that person to be used. Now in verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now this is interesting. Simeon was given a promise by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah. Now there is a revealing nature in God. Because God lives outside of time, he can show us things which are to come. And it's super interesting the way I illustrate it sometimes. It's imagine that God is looking down on a train and he sees the front car and he sees the last car in this train. You see, we are traveling through time on one of these cars and time is moving alongside of us and God sees the beginning and he sees the end and we can only exist in one moment, but God sees the whole picture. And because of this, God is able to at times give revelation so the whole book of the Revelation at the end of the Bible, given to John. There are some, like myself, who believe that John is taken up in the Spirit and shown these things that are to come, whether there be signs or literal visions. John is able to see these things because the Lord takes him, so to speak, off of that train ride and shows him, look at the last cart. You see what you see there? And in a sense, he is seeing the future, but in a sense, he is seeing what is already happening. It's like, what? what? <laughs> it hasn't happened yet for us. And there's not different realities, no. I don't want to get too philosophical on this. Go watch the movie Tenet. I'm just kidding. <laughs> But time, God lives outside of it. You see, because God, he cannot be divided into parts. When you study his attributes, you realize that God is one omnipresent being, that he is everywhere at once. So God cannot come into time because if God was going to come into time, that would mean that he wasn't previously there. So God is always present. And we can find comfort in that, knowing that the future that is ahead of us, God is there. And God knows. And he's sovereign and he's lining all these things up for us so that we don't have to worry and strive in anxiety about our future. But trust on him. Lay your plans before him. Just as Simeon was, it was revealed to him that the Messiah was going to be shown to him. And then in verse 26, which we read in verse 27, it says, So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Now, as Simeon went into this temple by the Spirit, how do you think exactly 
he went into the temple that day. Do you think because it says by the Spirit that Simeon went to the temple with a bunch of candles and some worship ceremony and sang some chant as he walked in by the Spirit? Was there some sort of spiritual sensation that he was following and just led by the Spirit, this warm, fuzzy feeling that he was following after? Or was it perhaps that Simeon was simply doing what he had always done and he didn't even know that that day the Spirit had a special blessing awaiting for him? You see, we often seek a mountaintop experience as a way to measure how close we are to God. But that is not how the reality of God's presence in our lives. We don't have more of God in this room right now and less of him when we walk out that door. God is omnipresent. Now, remember, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So there is a wilderness experience where the Spirit can lead us into. And we remember that we walk by faith, not by sight. So as Simeon is walking into this temple, led by the Spirit, I'm thinking he was led by the Spirit to continue in doing what he has done on days when he would go to the temple. And then in verse 28, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So now as Simeon is looking down at this young child, this little baby boy, he has his eyes on Jesus and his heart is comforted. He knows that he can go in peace now. God has fulfilled his promise. You see, it's not until we have our eyes on Jesus that we have true peace. Perhaps you've seen that, that bumper sticker that says, No God, no peace. And there's two ways it's spelled. It's N-O, God, and then N-O, peace. So if you don't have God, then you don't have peace. And then there's another way it's spelled, K-N-O-W, God, know God, and then know, understand his peace. And that's the truth. You see, there's all types of fake pieces in this world that will give us satisfaction for a moment, but in the end, they come to nothing. See, Jesus had come to bring light to this world, as we just read. For the Gentiles and also for Israel in verse 32. You see, now this would have been something quite interesting for Simeon there in the temple to be hearing. That, that this was going to bring revelation to the Gentiles. You see, at this point in time, they were, the Jews were like, we're the holy ones. We're the holy rollers. And you know what? God has given us his oracles of God, and you know we're first to, to be saved. And the Gentiles, they literally believed that the Gentiles, God made them to fuel the fires of hell. That was a belief that they had. They were wrong. And God was now revealing to the Jews that salvation was also for the Gentiles. It wasn't just for the Jews. The Jews were supposed to be an example of God to the rest of the world, and they were failing to do so, as oftentimes we do. We're called to be a light to the world. And sometimes we fail. But thank God for his grace, for his mercy, for his mercies are new every morning. 
You see, today is the first day of the rest of your life. And how do we build character and integrity day by day? It doesn't happen overnight. It's a consistency, continually growing in the Lord and growing stronger. So don't be burdened and condemned without, you know, we were not Jesus in the moment. We're being prepared. And one day there will be no more sin in us. Verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You see, Jesus, he was going to be for the fall and rising of many in Israel, meaning Jesus was going to be a stumbling block for those who were practicing a works-based relationship. The Pharisees and all of their legalism, it was coming down. And Jesus, instead of focusing on, on, the, on the Pharisees, he went to the humble and to the meek to raise them up. For those who hunger for righteousness, they will receive it. The Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Now, there's a, in verse 35 a warning for Mary when he says, A sword will pierce through your own soul also. Mary would face the piercing pain of losing her son. She would see and watch as they take Jesus after he was already had a bag thrown on his head and already beaten. Mary would see after what the results of the whipping that Jesus would endure. The cat of nine tails, which was this whip, which at the end of that whip, they had a bunch of, of, of teeth and glass and sharp rocks tied to it so that as the one who was doing the punishment would whip the victim, the victim would have those teeth and sharp objects dig into the skin, and when he would pull it back, it would rip off chunks of the flesh. And after they would whip him and beat him, they would put a crown of thorns on his head. And then Mary would see him as they nailed him to a cross and lifted him up. And that piercing pain for her own son, her own child, she was his mother. And he did that for us. He did that so that we can get together this morning with the ability to, to meet free of sin without bondage to the world, full of the Holy Spirit, so that we can live out a life that is purposed in his perfect will, so that we can have rejoicing, so that we can have hope and a new day. But it came at a, at a cost, at a price. And what cost Jesus everything, we shouldn't take it for granted. In verse 36, now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So this woman, Anna, she's a prophetess. It's an interesting way they, they word it, but basically... Seven years from the time she began having her period, she got married. And now in her old age, after becoming a widow at the age of 84, 
we see her serving the Lord. As an elderly woman, what's interesting is she hasn't lost hope. Perhaps it was because she was a a woman who was in worship and in prayer constantly, in fasting and in prayer, night and day. You know, fasting and prayer, if you guys haven't begun this lifestyle of fasting and prayer, being led by the Spirit, I would encourage you, take a, skip a meal and, and pray and seek the Lord for wisdom, discernment. Ask him for guidance and just watch how God moves. In verse 39, so when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. See, Jesus was perfectly obedient to God, even as a child. Now, Jesus grew and developed just as other children, you know. His growth was spiritual, but it was also natural. When Jesus' mom was giving him a bath, he didn't just part like the waters to stay away from the water. You know, Jesus <laughs> was also a little baby. He cried. And we don't fully understand exactly when it was that he began to understand that he was the Messiah. Jesus didn't come out talking like, I'm going to save the world. Jesus had to learn and grow and mature as a child, but he grew in the Holy Spirit. He grew in the Lord. And somehow, one way or another, God the Father began to reveal to him the call in his life. In verse 41, But his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Now this Feast of Passover, something to to keep in mind, there are three major feasts which the Jews celebrated. There's Passover, there's Pentecost, and there's Tabernacles. And all of those has significance to a future event. Now in verse 42, And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. So this is now probably the first time that Jesus is able to go to the feast because he's now 12 years old. And this is around the time when the young boys would have their bar mitzvahs and become a man. And then in verse 43, when they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now, usually in traveling, the Jews, as they would travel to these festivals, they would have all the women go ahead before the men would leave because usually the women with the kids, they would be a little bit slower and eventually the men would catch up. I'm thinking maybe we should continue this practice of women go first and then we'll catch up with you a little bit later. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So when Joseph perhaps met with Mary and asked where Jesus was, there wasn't an answer for them. She's like, oh, he wasn't with you? And then um, they begin to seek out, where's our son? And then verse 45, so when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So their parents, Joseph and Mary, are probably worried, sick, and even probably upset. Now, this Passover season, it was custom for the Sanhedrin to meet in public, in the temple, to discuss theology and spirituality with people in a public forum. And when they get there, what they find is they find Jesus, and he's speaking with all these elders of the Sanhedrin, 
able to have a conversation with them at the age of 12 years old. It'd be similar to us watching a young child speak with guys like Elon Musk and a bunch of astronauts about space exploration. You'd be like, wow, how does this kid know so much about space? But that's the, the truth that was in Jesus. He knew the spiritual truths of God. And then in verse 48, so when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. So Mary is stating to little Jesus, don't you know that your father and I were, were seeking you? But Jesus says something that recognizes that his father was God. He says, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Now Jesus understands who his father is, God the father. And that emphasis on I must be about my father's business, he doesn't say that, that I should be or that I, I need to try to be, but I must be, it's stronger. There's a desire there. And then in verse 51, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. See, Jesus still, he was humble with his parents. And that word that he found favor, that same meaning is grace. He found grace with God and with men. You see, Jesus, it was also here being prepared. We don't know too many stories and accounts of Jesus as a little kid. Here's one of them. But we do know that he was prepared by God. And that by the time he was in his early 30s, that was when the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and he begins his earthly ministry, being used of the Lord. But imagine all those years as a young teenager and then as a, a young adult, having to wait, wait upon God to be used. Perhaps we feel that we're in a season right now of waiting. We're in a season of wilderness experience. Thank God. Thank God that he's preparing us. May we learn the lessons today that we are being prepared and every season is preparation for the next. But as we looked at this chapter this morning, what we see is Jesus coming to this world, our Savior. He is a wonderful Savior. And I rejoice that he has come. And I stand here before you to let you know that without him, I, I would not be here. Without him in my life. And I'm thankful that Jesus has come into our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you again, Father, to thank you for this testimony of you coming to the world. Father, you came and you died for our sins, Father, though we are guilty. Lord God, you are holy. I pray this morning, Father, that you would help us by the Holy Spirit to open our hearts completely and fully to you. This morning, if you just need help from the Holy Spirit to completely submit and surrender for his perfect will in your life, if there's something that's hindering you, just raise your hand this morning and I just want to pray that the Holy Spirit would give you that deliverance. And I'm raising my hand with you guys. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love, your goodness. For those who raise their hand, I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would give them deliverance, Lord. Give them discernment, wisdom, Father, peace, 
in that trial, in that situation. For those who are listening online, and that's you, I pray for you also. I pray, Father, that you would just anoint us to live out that purpose-filled life. May your Holy Spirit come upon us. We love you, Father. We praise you. And may we go forward this week and just all together as a church, Father, just loving one another, praying and seeking your perfect will. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand this morning. Wednesday night online and see you guys back here on Sunday morning. Love you guys.